0: With the recent introduction of adjuvant trastuzumab in clinical practice, the hope is that fewer patients will be diagnosed with metastatic disease. But at the current time, many patients still are being treated in medical oncology practice for advanced disease. And I asked Dr. Lisa Carey to provide a snapshot on the management of these patients by presenting a woman from her practice.
1: She was 45 years old, and she was diagnosed in early 1999 with a stage 1 hormone receptor-positive and HER2-positive breast cancer. She underwent a mastectomy, adjuvant AC times 4, and then tamoxifen. It was actually on tamoxifen when she developed a stage 4 disease. And I remember it very clearly because she was swinging a golf club and broke her arm. And that was how she presented with her stage 4 disease quite quickly. This is in 2000. And sort of whole-body evaluation revealed disease involving lungs, liver, and bone she underwent biopsy, which confirmed the disease and that it had the same receptors. And she initially was treated locally with her. She actually had bilateral humoral involvement, was pinned and radiated.
0: This is just like a year after adjunct therapy?
1: Yes, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. Of course so it was she the pre- in spite of being hormone receptor
0: positive, she relapsed quite quickly. Although she was being HER2 positive, fits more into that mold. And I guess in 99 and 2000, obviously... We didn't have adjuvant trastuzumab on board at that point.
1: That's right. That's right. And I think one of the things we've learned about the heterogeneity of ER ER-positive disease is that it's not all the indolent disease that the majority may be, but there are certainly a significant proportion that are quite aggressive and tend to relapse early and warrant aggressive treatment. And certainly HER2 is a good way of teasing out at least some of those. So we treated her with a pacotaxel, trastuzumab, and then, of course, she was on Zimeta, Zolendronate, for about a year and change and actually was doing well on the regimen but developed grade 3 neuropathy. She's a diabetic and actually had pretty severe motor involvement quite quickly, developed a foot drop. And we gave her a holiday, and she improved, and we changed her over to vinerelbine. It wasn't much of a holiday, maybe a few weeks, which she stayed on for more than five years. Wow. And tolerated well. And that was
0: with trastuzumab.
1: Yep, it was vinorelbine, trastuzumab, and zelendronate. The zelendronate, actually, we took her off after about three years because she developed some renal insufficiency that was gradual but clear. And again, probably was you know in the setting of her diabetes and other comorbidities, just too much for her kidneys. And she really did extraordinarily well. And she used to say that she only had cancer on Fridays because she was on a weekly regimen. And she would come in, get her treatment. She said, the rest of the time, I forget about you people. And you know, for somebody with visceral disease for a number of years, that's a
0: – So five years after having progressed on chemo – well, did she prog- – no, oh, oh, no, she didn't. She had oh, a neuropathy. See. So she actually was responding to the taxol trastuzumab, mm-hmm. but you had to stop it because of the neuropathy. Correct. And so you switched her onto to this. So she basically had the six-year response to widespread her two positive METs.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Interesting. So what was the next step?
1: So during that time, and sort of the fork in the road came when she had some word-finding difficulty. And I can remember calling and saying, something's not right. Her husband actually called me. And we imaged her, and she had a left frontal lesion, isolated brain met. And it was resected, and she had placement on protocol of a BCNU wafer. We did not do whole brain radiotherapy. We sort of put it in our back pocket and said, when we start seeing evidence of disease elsewhere in the brain, we'll radiate the rest of the brain then.
0: Same tissue same as the tissue, primary? Same
1: tissue. Looked exactly the same. Or two
0: positive still?
1: Everything was the same. Mm-hmm. And she has never progressed in her brain ever since, or nor anywhere else for that matter. I finally convinced her to take a chemotherapy holiday. I mean, I'd bring this up and she'd say, why would I stop? <laughs> Which is a hard argument for me to make because she was having exactly no toxicity of the drugs and was feeling great and her disease was controlled. I did convince her to take a chemotherapy holiday starting a couple of years ago and put her on an AI with the trastuzumab, and she's been on that ever since and is still doing exceptionally well.
0: You know, surgeons aren't usually exposed to cases like this, but I think there's a lot of lessons here. And the first, I mean, obviously, this is not a typical case, but I imagine it's not a rare case where you see disease control for long periods of time with metastatic disease.
1: No, not at all. I mean, I think it's becoming more the norm with HER2-positive disease. You know, this is where we see these very long responders. And intriguingly, on some of the trials of targeted agents, and I don't know if Joyce O'Shaughnessy has spoken to you a little bit about her experience and mine was very similar with the EGFR inhibitor trial, where there was a small number of patients who just... Responded and continued to respond for a very long time on both her randomized phase two trial and mine of cetuximab in the triple negative setting.
0: So you're saying objective responses? Objective
1: response, yeah, hmm. confirmed objective responses that were for a long, long time. Now, they were very uncommon, but that's certainly the direction that we have gone in with HER2-positive disease. And certainly, I'd say with hormone receptor positive disease, we can, with a variety of endocrine maneuvers, we can keep people well for
0: quite a number of years. What about the issue of brain mets? What are we seeing in terms of the HER2-positive situation, particularly in the adjuvant trials? Are we seeing patients break through who have disease control elsewhere, or is that really not a big problem?
1: I think the data is not really clear about whether the trastuzumab trials, whether there's a big difference in brain mets between the treated and the untreated arms yet, you know, and the event number is still quite small, so it's hard to say. I think certainly over time in the metastatic setting, HER2-positive disease quite commonly involves the brain. If mets develop, it's oftentimes one of the first sites.
0: Let's go through some of the issues in terms of what's going on in terms of clinical research, in terms of systemic therapy of breast cancer, using this as a background in terms of some of the strategies in terms of biologic therapy that are being used. What are some of the things that have come out in the last year? Why don't we start out with HER2-positive disease that you think are most important for docs in practice and particularly surgeons to know about?
1: Well, certainly for HER2-targeted therapy, the only thing we use now in the adjuvant setting is trastuzumab. But there are a number of very large trials that are examining the role of lapatinib in this setting. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if the preclinical hypothesis that two HER2-targeted drugs are better than one proves to be true. In combination. That's right. That's right. And so I think there's some large adjuvant trials that will answer
0: that question. Can you talk about exactly where trastuzumab is affecting the cancer cell and where lopatinib is? Well,
1: so tristuzumab is a monoclonal antibody, and so it binds to the outside part of the cell where the receptor is, so the extracellular domain. And how exactly it affects its action is a subject of some debate. Originally, it was thought to be entirely by receptor downregulation. In truth, it may do some of that, but it also induces apoptosis, it has hypoproliferation effects, and it induces an immune response, a favorable one. So it probably does some combination of those things. Lapatinib is a small molecule. It operates on the inside, so it is an inhibitor of the tyrosine kinase element. And so that's in part the reason why you can think of why they may be synergistic because they're sort of operating at two different ends of the signaling pathway.
0: And I guess, as you said, we're looking at this in the adjuvant setting, but we're starting Mm -hmm. to get some hints for metastatic disease that maybe combining these is going to be even better.
1: Well, yeah. In fact, even in patients who have progressed on trastuzumab, if you continue the trastuzumab when you add lapatinib, they will do better than if you just switch to lapatinib. So... George Sledge once made a famous comment that one dumb tumor is still smarter than 10 smart oncologists. (laughs) And in truth, as tumors figure out ways around our drugs, you may have to still keep blocking your first pathway as you start blocking the alternate mechanisms that the cell uses to stay alive.
0: Yeah, we're hearing this in all kinds of biologic therapy situations, imatinib and gist and Mm issues out there on the table in terms of bevacizumab in a number of solid tumors. And for a long time, oncologists would just keep giving trastuzumab and switching the chemotherapy. Now we have some other alternatives. But actually, I guess for the first time last year, we saw some evidence. There was a German trial presented that showed that actually keeping the trastuzumab going maybe did help.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. That was Gunther von Minkwitz who really you know, I think it was a tour de force because everybody had struggled to try and answer this question. Nobody a, could get
0: the trial done.
1: No one could get the trial done. And it was a very common non-evidence-based practice, but no one was sure if it actually was the right thing to do. And what Gunther showed and the Germans quite nicely was that even if you change to a non-cross-resistant chemotherapy and continued the trastuzumab, you seem to gain benefit.
0: And I guess your patient, in a way, with this six-year history, let's say I guess at this point she's been on anti-HER2 therapy for eight years.
1: Nine, yeah, it's coming nine up years. nine, years is a
0: good example of that. What about the issue of HER2 measurement and the question that's been raised now recently over the last year or so by soon and the NSABP of whether or not it's possible in the adjuvant setting that people with HER2 low, so to speak, tumors might benefit from trastuzumab. Can you talk about that and what you think about it?
1: Yeah, I think it's an open question still. I don't think anyone knows quite what to do with soon data. I mean, you know, this is obviously very credible data, but it's small and it's limited by the fact that the tumors obviously at some point somebody thought they were HER2 positive and the methodology for HER2 assessment, while it's very good, is not perfect. And assessing whether or not a tumor is driven by the HER2 pathway. There's probably no single modality that's 100% accurate in that. And I don't know. I wouldn't do it off of a trial. I would not treat HER2 negative disease with HER2 targeted therapy unless it was on a trial. And I think these are intriguing questions that still have to be addressed further.
0: And hopefully they will be addressed in clinical trial. But it also leads into the whole murky issue of what is HER2 positive? What is ER positive for that matter? We now have two pretty non-toxic, really efficacious therapies that need to be given to the right people. I'm not so sure that's happening.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right. The unspoken truth about this is that all of our marker assays are likely to be imperfect to some degree. And the gold standard really hasn't been established for a lot of these. I think we're actually getting closer to it with ER now that they're moving to some of the quantitative RT-PCR-based approaches. But the other question is, does a single marker ever truly reflect a pathway? Among the things that are being kicked around are the fact that there's an association with BRCA1 dysfunction. So if a woman who has a BRCA1 mutation gets breast cancer, most of the time she's going to get a basal-like breast cancer. Triple so That's right. It's triple negative, but it's even beyond triple negative. It's actually basal-like on molecular subtyping. It's sort of been looked at in the most rigorous scientific way. So that's led people to believe that BRCA1 must not be working in basal-like breast cancer, at least
0: some or most of them. And when you say it's not working, what does that really mean?
1: Well, so the therapeutic implication of that is that BRCA1 pathway, BRCA1 and its friends, are very important in DNA repair. So they're integral to DNA repair, particularly the kind of DNA repair called homologous recombination. And many of our chemotherapies work by damaging DNA. And in particular, some of our drugs like platinum agents, but also anthracyclines, that's in part how they work. So the idea is that you may be able to take advantage of a deficit in DNA repair by targeting that kind of approach in the basal-like subtype. And there are a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors that, in fact, are predicated on the idea that if BRCA1 is lost and you bring in inhibition of PARP, you may get real cell kill. And what's PARP? So if you think of the DNA repair, there's homologous recombination, which is dependent on BRCA1. If that pathway is lost then the cell becomes dependent on non-homologous approaches to ro- the same kind of repair, which is itself dependent on PARP. So if you think about it, you've got homologous recombination. If you don't have that, you have non-homologous. One's dependent on BRCA1. The other's dependent on PARP. If you knock them both out, then you've knocked out both ways of repairing DNA.
0: I guess we're pretty selective about what new systemic agents we talk about on this series. because you know, It's not that relevant to most surgeons, but you know, the PARP inhibitors is one set of drugs that Look pretty interesting. I've heard actually about cases of people who've actually had responses to them. I don't know if you yeah. ever treated anybody with them.
1: I have not. We're working on some trial concepts, but we have not participated in any of the trials so far.
0: I guess the trials now are particularly focusing on women with BRCA1 mutations, although and triple negative, triple negative, and the question of you know how far this is going to be. You know, it's just kind of the beginning of looking at this, but. It seems like it maybe actually is something that's going to turn into something useful.
1: Yeah, and there will be some reports at ASCO, so people should keep their eyes out for the earliest trials to be reported there.
0: Any other strategies that are being looked at or have been looked at in terms of triple negatives?
1: Well, so if you look at ECOG-2100, which is the pivotal trial looking at the addition of bevacizumab to paclitaxel in the metastatic setting that demonstrated that if you add an anti-angiogenic agent to chemotherapy for metastatic disease, patients do better. They have a longer progression-free survival. In the subset of that, looking at by hormone receptors and in a sense HER2, the group that were largely triple negative, showed a benefit similar to, or even maybe a little more than, the average patient in the trial. So that suggests that there may be a targeted agent with anti-angiogenic strategies in triple negative that would be effective. That's actually being tested directly in a neoadjuvant study that'll be opening in CALGB, probably a little later on this year, where they're going to randomize patients to taxane alone, with or without bevacizumab, and then followed by dose-dense AC prior to surgery. So there's a secondary randomization to platinum or not, but it's basically chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab for only triple negative clinical stage two and three breast cancers.
0: I guess the NSABP is also looking at chemotherapy plus or minus bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting.
1: They are. Not to just triple negative. They're looking in a more global sense. That's exactly right.
0: It seems like there's been a shift in. There's always an interest in neoadjuvant or preoperative systemic therapy clinically But now it seems like there's a lot more interest also in the issue of looking at the tissue and trying to understand, you know, what's really going on biologically.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we can't get smarter about targeted therapies until we can actually see what we're doing and seeing how the cancer is getting around our efforts. I think we're lulled into a little bit of a sense of security with ER and HER2 targeting because they worked so well. But I think those are the low-hanging fruit of targeted treatments and any rational Further approaches or combinations are going to have to be tissue-based to a large extent before we can understand them. We learned a lot from a trial that we did recently that took metastatic triple-negative breast cancers. There's a reason to think that EGFR inhibition would work in them. In in cell lines, they're dependent on EGFR. It's one of the genetic criteria for being basal-like on a molecular level. So we did a study where we took metastatic triple negative breast cancer and they received carboplatin and cetuximab, the anti-EGFR monoclonal antibody. And we asked the women participating in the trial to allow biopsy, serial biopsy before and after therapy. And we had very good samples on 16 women before and after therapy. So it was before therapy and one week later. And this is liver, lymph nodes, you know, so the target lesion. Interestingly, so in spite of a lot of preclinical data supporting the importance of EGFR in growth and proliferation of these kind of cancers. We found that most tumors, in fact, did have EGFR expressed and the pathway was activated. Not all of them, it was 12 out of the 16, which meant that four, there was no reasonable chance of the drug working because the pathway wasn't turned on and we wouldn't have known it if we just made the assumption that all of them would have EGFR activated. But in the 12 that did, where you think, okay, it should work in them, it only worked in four of them, four of the 12, looking at the actual down. I'm not talking about clinically, but even on a molecular level, actually seeing the pathway turned off by the drug happened in four of the 12. So in the other eight, all of whom, of course, progressed, as you would expect, the drug didn't work. And we don't know why. So clearly, there are alternate mechanisms that work. Now, that kind of study needs to be done on a whole scale level. We can't just make assumptions. We want to treat everybody in an individualized way. And we can't do it unless we really understand how the tumors are getting around the targeted therapies. And I think the neoadjuvant setting allows us to examine the drugs that we're using much more carefully than we can if we're treating in the black box of the adjuvant setting.
0: What happened to the four patients?
1: One had a lovely partial response that lasted for a number of months. One had sustained stabilization of her disease, again, for a number of months. I think she was one of our very long-term responders, and two progressed.
0: Hmm. What are some of the other areas of clinical research in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting that you think are going to be most fruitful over the next few years?
1: Well, I think, you know, over the next few years, the areas that people are ready for prime time in terms of targeted treatments are the HER2 question. And I think there are a number of drugs beyond lapatinib, which is the next best idea for right now. But, you know, there are a number of drugs that are showing effectiveness in HER2 positive disease, like the trastuzumab DM toxin conjugate. So it's basically... Trastuzumab bound to a toxin. Um, I actually
0: hope Rugo's on the same program and she presented a patient from one of the trials who had a great response. That's
1: right. Well, and they've shown some lovely responses in patients who have progressed on HER2-targeted therapy. There are some other monoclonal antibodies like pertuzumab that are also coming in and many of them I think will be you know, some of them may work by themselves and some may work in conjunction and make trastuzumab stronger. I mean, these are the kinds of things where we hopefully in the future, so here's the dream down the road for a HER2-positive breast cancer patient that you might get away from chemotherapy altogether. You may use a combination of biologics in order to control her disease. We're not close to that yet. And I think it's also true that chemotherapy is the backbone for all of these regimens. But maybe someday we'll be able to just do multiple targets and control the disease without cytotoxics or chemotherapy. For hormone receptor positive breast cancers, you know, I think part of our biggest challenge is figuring out not just how to treat better, but figure out who we're over-treating right now. So getting back to our luminal A, luminal B distinction, I mean, there's a number of patients for whom just endocrine therapy is adequate. And we're really, we're scratching the surface with the recurrence score, but there's a lot of heterogeneity there that we can't quite explain. And that would be something that will be down the road too.
0: You mentioned the impact that the recurrence scores had in docotype in terms of clinical practice. What are your thoughts about the newer data that's coming out now on patients with the node positive tumors?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, biology is biology. And I think The oncotype recurrence score and other prognostic profiles, all of the studies that have been done with them suggest that they are independent. They give prognostic information independent of the clinical variables. And they do that with node-positive disease, just as they do with node-negative disease. The problem is that they don't supplant the clinical variables. So the risk is still quite high in a node-positive breast cancer patient, regardless of what recurrence score they have. So the question is, how do you use it therapeutically? You know, how do you identify a truly low risk node positive breast cancer patient in whom they will have a very low risk of recurrence with all of our available modalities? And we really can't identify that patient yet.
0: We were talking about neoadjuvant therapy. What about the genomic assays like the recurrence score in that setting?
1: Well, you know, their recurrence score has been looked at in the neoadjuvant setting. So, Luca Gianni, one of the first studies looking at chemotherapy sensitivity by the oncotype recurrence score, demonstrated that. Pathologic complete responders were associated with very high recurrence scores. Now, they were really, really high recurrence scores because a lot of the patients, this was a locally advanced population that included ER-negative disease, and there's really no benefit of obtaining a recurrence score in an ER-negative breast cancer. So it was more proof of principle in a sense. You know, I think it hasn't really been looked at in terms of the neoadjuvant setting, in part because the neoadjuvant setting assumes you've already know that you're going to give chemotherapy. So, it's a tool for giving your therapy up front rather than out back, but it's not a tool for not giving it at all or changing to a neoadjuvant endocrine approach, for example, which I think is the suggestion.
0: What are some of the other clinical research questions that are being asked right now, both in the adjuvant and metastatic setting, that you think are going to have the most impact on clinical practice in the next few years?
1: Well, so I think what you've mentioned is a move towards more of the neoadjuvant studies, and I think. The kind of ground swell of enthusiasm for doing studies in the adjuvant setting has come from the fact that so many of the trials that have been done have demonstrated that you don't lose anything clinically by administering the drugs in the preoperative setting, but you gain a lot of information about the behavior of the tumors and you open up a whole arena of correlative science studies that can really help us figure out how to tailor our therapies. So I think you're going to see more of them. I mean, for example, CLGB had never done neoadjuvant studies before that were therapeutic. I mean, they had the i trial, which I think that was a purely correlative study that's been a gift that keeps on giving in terms of identifying biomarkers and predictors of responsiveness. But it wasn't a therapeutic trial, and the CLGB therapeutic trials just opened. The NSAUP has done a number of these. The SWOG is doing them. So I think, particularly for a surgical audience, the truth is that for us to do those kind of studies requires multidisciplinary effort and for everyone to be you know, really involved in it. And it's going to require research biopsies that are part of the clinical trial. I think that the day of several thousand person adjuvant trials being the only way to answer the questions that face us has really got to come to an end. I don't think we can do it anymore because we don't have one question anymore. It's not one drug at a time. We're inundated in great ideas or ideas that may be relevant for one subtype and not another. And so we have a bunch of niche diseases and a bunch of great ideas, and we simply can't do multi-thousand trials. So I think among the biggest changes is this shift, and I think it's reflective of a great need and also a potential great benefit. But it's more complicated, and it really does require that the surgeons and the medical oncologists are in sync with each other.
0: Let's talk a little bit about endocrine therapy. There were a bunch of presentations at the San Antonio meeting that were interesting in that regard. One was a meta-analysis that was done of the trials looking at aromatase inhibitors, and another was the so-called Big 98 study looking at Mm -hmm. a bunch of different endocrine strategies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what came out of those two papers and what your take was on it?
1: Well, I think you know the bottom line is that aromatase inhibitors are an important component of therapy for the hormone receptor-positive postmenopausal woman. I think there's also a lot of ways to skin the cat in terms of your use of an aromatase inhibitor. So including it at some point in her treatment is crucial. The big question of a switching strategy versus an upfront strategy, I think for individual patients, it's appropriate for the higher risk patients to incorporate the aromatase inhibitors early. For the lower risk patients, I think a switching strategy is quite reasonable and being mindful of their bone health. I think the greatest question for us right now is how long do you treat for? if you look at some of the hazard rates of relapse over time, so on a year-to-year basis, if you look in, for example, MA17, which was the after five years of adjuvant tamoxifen randomized to placebo versus letrozole, the difference in relapse between the letrozole versus the placebo group was found on year one, year two, year three. I mean, it just kept going. So there is certainly a group of patients who are at risk for relapse 5, 10, 15 years later, and for them, prolonged endocrine strategies are probably appropriate. And the amazing
0: thing is that endocrine therapy works that late out there. It
1: does. But clearly, I mean, you're talking in MA17, we're talking years 5 through 10. And now, of course, MA17 has been re-randomized and re-randomized. So they'll be trying to look at it even further than that. You know, the MD Anderson did an intriguing analysis of their database where they took patients, they started the clock five years out from diagnosis, and they looked at what the risk was in an ongoing fashion, and they found more or less confirmed what people had suggested previously, which is that there's a persistent risk, you know, in the years 5 through 10, and even in the years 10 through 15 after diagnosis of relapse, and particular in the hormone receptor positive group of patients. And that risk was, you know, approaching 10% even in those later years. What probably happens about seven or eight years out, it looks like there's a switch, and the ER negative risk falls off, and actually the risk of relapse if you have a hormone receptor-positive breast cancer patient is higher than if you had a hormone receptor-negative, which, of course, flies in the face of our bias that hormone receptor-negative breast cancer is prognostically worse. That's actually not the case once you get a few years out. And those hormone receptor-positive, you almost see a sort of constant low-level risk of relapse. Now, biologically, we don't have a good feel for who are these late relapsers, you know, what are the tumors doing during those times, and what turns them back on again many years later. If you look at some of the prognostic profiles, like the 70 gene or 76 gene profiles, they clearly work better for predicting early relapse because they were designed on gene sets where they were, you know, patients relapsing, say, within five years or not. Probably need to go back to the drawing board for those later relapses to figure out their biology.
0: How do you approach the issue of continuation or stopping an aromatase inhibitor in a patient who's been on it for five years? Clearly, there are studies out there that patients can be put on. But what about outside a protocol setting?
1: Outside of a protocol setting, I'm quite comfortable with patients having five years of an aromatase inhibitor, regardless of how much tamoxifen they had before that. And I think you have to gauge it by what you think their risk is. I mean, in the small stage one cancers, you know, the absolute risk is probably relatively low. So the absolute benefit after that fifth year is also fairly low. I think in the higher risk patients, what I do now is I have a conversation with the patient and I say, you know, we're now entering a data-free zone. (laughs) Here's the issues and here's what our options are. And oftentimes the patient makes the choice if she, you know, I've had patients say to me, well, why would I stop? You're checking my bone health. It's fine. I'm feeling great. I had a stage three cancer. Why would I stop right now? And I have to say, I appreciate their candor about it and some of them we continue it, but it is something that we have a specific conversation about at that fifth year.
0: Anything new in terms of the side effects and risks of taking aromatase inhibitors?
1: I think there's been a lot of effort trying to identify the risks because of how many patients we're treating with these. And I think the most clearly defined risks have to do with the bones which appear to be largely risks during therapy. The existing data suggests that those differences in bone mineral density seem to come together again after cessation of the drugs. Moreover, you can abrogate it with bisphosphonate use. And, you know, we may end up using bisphosphonates for risk reduction, you know, efforts depending on the results of Azure and B34. So I think that's the main one. I'm not aware of other long-term toxicities that have panned out as being
0: particularly relevant. What about side effects? And I guess the one people talk a lot about are arthralgias. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a real thing, particularly early on. I have to say, I think this was underappreciated in the early trials. And certainly those of us who treat these patients, I have, you know, I seldom have to take patients off of tamoxifen for side effects, and it's not uncommon for aromatase inhibitors. My approach to it is to try to switch aromatase inhibitors first. Sometimes it seems to be a drug-specific effect. It also can be a class effect, and it doesn't matter which drug you use. And when that happens, then most of the benefit occurs with the tamoxifen, and you can also then try a switching strategy. I think some of the effect a couple of years later seems to be less strong. So I've had some success with trying a switching strategy in those that have trouble. But it is definitely a problem and sometimes you can't ameliorate it.
0: What was your take on the big study? Because it attempted to look at the switching strategy in terms of the randomization both ways, starting with the AI, switching to tamoxifen, starting with tamoxifen, switching to the AI.
1: Yeah, well, and I think, you know, the bottom line again was that use of the AI was beneficial in the one strategy that clearly is inferior is no AI. I and mean, I think that's a very real thing. And I I still think that a switching strategy is quite reasonable in the patients that you don't think are a very high risk of early relapse, for example, the node-negative patients. For node-positive patients or other high-risk categories, I do tend to employ the earlier use of the AI.
0: What are your thoughts about the trials now looking at bevacizumab as an anti-angiogenic strategy in the adjuvant setting?
1: Well, I think we hope it works, but I don't know. I think you know, we have this assumption that as we move from the metastatic setting to the adjuvant setting that because usually things that have worked well in the MetaSec setting oftentimes, particularly when they're truly novel, we've seen a benefit. You know what? The problem with antiangiogenic strategies is there's difference between treating a macromet, which is what you're doing in the MetaSec setting, and treating micrometastatic disease. Biologically, they may be different, and from the standpoint of the mechanisms of recruiting or creating new blood vessels versus maintaining old ones may be very different. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think there are some assumptions that are made that may be different for these novel therapies. We can't just take our cytotoxic strategies and assume that everything is going to work exactly the same with these other strategies. And I think even more so with the neoadjuvant strategies. I am concerned with neoadjuvant studies of bevacizumab that you may not see much of an effect in an established tumor and it doesn't mean that it won't work in the micrometastatic disease. So we have to be careful, we have to make sure that we're waiting for event-free survival and real clinical endpoints in those neoadjuvant studies.
0: I guess another issue with bevacizumab, particularly relevant to the surgeon, is the issue of wound healing. What do we know about that, and how do you approach it in your own practice? I'm sure you're using a lot of bevacizumab, metastatic disease, putting patients on trials in the adjuvant setting. How do you approach that?
1: Well, we're pretty cautious, and we don't start it off protocol. We don't start it Within a month, we usually wait either four to six weeks before starting it if a patient is in the adjuvant setting on trial. Off trial for the metastatic setting, we stop it at least a month before any procedures and we wait for equally that long. I mean, I do have some great concerns about that, and I think we have to be very careful. I think there will be complications. I think we can almost predict that there will be wound healing issues, there may be seroma issues with some of these trials, and it may all be things that we learn to manage well, but there'll be new problems that we haven't encountered before with this move to the adjuvant setting.